Hello again listeners and welcome to a special football themed edition of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is always brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Vent. As you may know by now, each pod I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On this edition of the Just Checking In podcast, I wanted to explore a topic that has helped me and I'm sure many others in their lives, and that is the sport of football. In this pod, we're going to chat about the power football has to grow, develop and change people's lives for the better. We're also going to discuss its ability to be exclusionary at times, toxic and in many cases harmful to people's mental health. I'll be discussing the nuances in both these perspectives with two people whose lives have been impacted by football. In order for us to have this balanced discussion, I'm delighted to welcome on two members of the East London-based amateur side Babley Mavericks Football Club, who currently ply their trade in the East London Barking and Dagenham Sunday League. Frank Kane is head coach at Mabley FC, whilst Connor Fielder is a member of the playing squad. Frank and Connor balance being involved with Mabley alongside their full-time jobs, and they're both going to join me on this exploration of football and its relationship with men's mental health. At Vent, we are all about being a grassroots, community-based platform, so this partnership with a team at the heart of their community made perfect sense. Frank, Connor, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, lads. First of all, how are you both? Good, thank you. Thank you for having us. Connor, how are we? Yeah, very well, very well. No problem. Um, firstly, Frank, we discussed this podcast for a while, um, and we were both really keen to make this podcast a warts and all discussion. Firstly, do you want to tell the listeners how you and I both met? And then a bit about Mabley and then why you and Connor both saw Vent as something you wanted Mabley to support. Um, so to start with, Mabley Mavericks, as you said, is a Sun League football club, which actually originates back to 2004. Um, long before we got involved, it was based in Mabley Green, mm-hmm. hence name. Since about 2016 is when I got involved. And we still wanted to keep the traditions of the club, which is a community-based project, essentially. So mm-hmm. we want to work with the community while playing football and creating that environment where everyone's welcome and um, free to express themselves via on the pitch or socially as well. So it was really important for us that we start working with charities in the local area and also groups as well. So um, getting to know you, Freddie, for many years, I was made aware of Ben and the fantastic work you've been doing. And it was something, an idea that I think when we discussed it, we saw there could be a link between the club and the work you're doing as well because there's a massive crossover and that's what we'll talk about a little bit later but there's a massive crossover between football, sport and mental health in men especially which is now becoming less and less of a taboo subject and something that we want to explore further as a club to make mm. sure everyone's comfortable. And for Connor, just tell me a bit about why you decided to join Mabley and your sort of brief experiences um, since you've joined the club. Yes, I mean I've, I've always played football growing up but it's been something that I've always been involved in um, and I moved to London for work um, about three, three and a half years ago now. Um, didn't really know anyone in the area. I moved into East London. Um, so didn't really know many people, but I knew Dan Agnew, um, who I know. Friend of the pods. Friend, yeah. Good lad. Friend of Vent. Um, and obviously know him. Knew he was playing for, for a football team up here. So I actually got involved through him. So, so reached out to him, asked him if they're looking for players. Um, obviously at the time went down to pre-season training and, and got involved through Dan really mm-hmm. um, but yeah really enjoyed it it was my first season actually this season um, got to know a lot of the boys obviously branched out and got to meet a lot of new people through 
the football team as well. Um, and yeah, so far been a, a really positive experience playing with, with Mably. Excellent. So now that admin's out of the way, shall we get started? Absolutely. Now, the first topic I wanted to talk about with you, lads, is how your relationship with football started, particularly in the early years of your life. So from about four to 11 years old. I think the best question to kick us off with is if you could each just briefly tell the listeners about how each of you got into football, fell in love with it and the story behind it. So, uh, Frank, let's go with you first. To be honest with you, Fred, I didn't really get into football till probably eight years old. Okay. Probably a little bit later than some of my friends. Mm -hmm. Um, Started enjoying it on TV. My dad started taking me to a few games. I know we were speaking earlier. I think it was about 99 when I went to my first. And what club was it? Leighton Orient. Leighton Orient. Up the O's. Up the O's. National League champions. Um, never forget that never um, but then I got into enjoying football and then wanted to play football and we were quite lucky at the time in East London we had a local club where probably the whole of Wanstead and Aldersbrook used to attend at some point of time mm-hmm. during their childhood and that really created an opportunity for everyone to play football not depending on ability either because to be honest probably Early years, I wasn't the greatest footballer. Neither was I. was not the greatest. <laughs> um, but still got to play football and got to enjoy it and develop and then go through that way. And I was very lucky to play under a few good coaches who enabled me to develop socially and physically as a footballer as well. And yeah, that's really how I got into football. And that's where the love sort of come in. It was part of my weekly routine, Saturday mm. and Sunday. And it's something that really now, a weekend without football, it wouldn't doesn't seem doesn't seem as great to, does it yeah it doesn't really seem like it. so it's something i've always wanted to stay involved with definitely mm. so. and what about you connor so i i've always been involved with football so my dad played football that's where he kind of so professionally amateur yes yeah, so it was kind of semi-pro professional he played mm-hmm. in the football league for for one season with older shot um but yeah so he was playing kind of older shot farnborough woking scored at wembley wow so I, uh, yeah claim to fame <laughs> uh, fa trophy final four ninety five. Um, so I've always grown up around it, but I, like Frank, was actually quite late before I actually got involved myself. So I was kind of seven or eight before I actually started playing. Um, quite lucky in the community that I grew up in that we had quite a kind of a good footballing system. We had lots of teams in the local area. Um, started off a team called Alton United. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've got teams from seven all the way up to a, a senior senior men's team. So I was quite lucky to be in quite a structured club played in quite some good leagues um, and then always kind of played from there on from seven and obviously still still playing now so I've always kind of grown up around it but it was my yeah my dad's influence really that, that mm. got me into it from a, from a young age I think for kids I think their love for the game is at their purest for, it's, its purest form sort of that age bracket um, but I think we should also point out that that for many of these kids and I certainly experienced a little bit of it although I sort of pushed through that initial sort of exclusionary culture um the behavior of parents and 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 other parents at games can have a real damaging effect on children's love for the sport um in some cases it can even stop them playing altogether what what examples can you give the listeners about your own experiences about this sort of abusive behavior on the touch lines and and maybe outside of it as well i think now football for kids is just as important for parents as it is for the kids themselves why do you think that is i think they both got the dream Mm. I think they're caught on this idea. I think Connor would agree where parents just want their kids to become professional footballers Mm. and the lifestyle could bring them as well. So you think it's the money as well, you think? Yeah, I think that's something that's become a lot more apparent. I think just then I was just thinking, me and Connor were saying, we got involved quite late. Mm. 20 years ago, I don't think getting involved at eight years old was that late. Mm. 
But if we look mm-hmm. in that comparison to now, kids are getting involved at three, four years old mm-hmm. because parents are making them play because they want to get involved in sport. But yeah, I think sometimes there's a lot of pressure on kids to succeed mm. as well. And if that pressure comes too much in any form of life with pressures on you, mm. it's going to give you that negative experience. Mm. And as you said, that's when that negative experience happen. People will fall out of love in sport. Mm. In terms of me personally, um, I was really lucky. I had a very supportive family behind me and realistic as well, who just wanted me to play for fun. As I said earlier, wasn't the greatest footballer to start mm. off with. No pressure on me. Still felt a bit of pressure from other parents, which mm-hmm, is another mm-hmm. issue altogether. But at the end of the day, when I went home, I was lucky. I knew I had that little bit of a support system behind me, which kept reminding me just to enjoy the game. Mm. And that's really what it was. But yeah, I've seen it mm. now, today, out in the local, in the community, other levels, all levels of football. You see the pressure from parents, as mm. you say. But... I was lucky, I'd mm. say, definitely. Do you remember any so. horror stories, Connor, or or anything that you can remember when you were a child and you remember like a parent, I don't know, maybe proper shouting at their child when they were playing a game or even it was just like a game, you know, we all used to play, we always used to do training on a Saturday and then we used to have a little game, you know, at the end of the session. Do you remember any sort of stories from that or do you remember any games on a Sunday that were really bad? You know, tell us, tell the listeners maybe a bit about your experiences. Yeah, so for me, I think personally, like Frank, I was really lucky. My dad was great. He, although he was a footballer at the time, he never pushed me to do anything I didn't want to do um, and I think with the club I played for we were kind of a, a village team if you will coming mm-hmm. from quite a small town so there was no no real pushy parents but I did um, I refereed for a few years when I was probably 14, 15 mm. and um, what age were you refereeing games? What, so and what age games sorry for kids what, yes, what age were they? Did, mainly the games I kind of did were probably 8, 9, 10 year old kids um, and that was where I probably saw some of the worst things mm-hmm. from, from kind of parent level. Um, and I think because growing up around a club like Aldershot, who were, were obviously a, a relatively successful club, there's a lot of people that grow up around Aldershot that get into football with dreams of playing for Aldershot. Mm. And I think they've got quite a big system down to kind of seven, eight, nine years old. Um, and there's a few different teams within Aldershot. Mm. Um, it's not the the wealthiest area mm-hmm. it's not the the kind of nicest area in the world um and you do get quite a lot of parents that i saw especially refereeing that were one arguing amongst themselves team to team which mm. was quite shocking for me to see at that age mm. you know we get it now with fans in in kind of the premier league in, in all levels of football in, in men's football but to actually see it at that kind of level and the impact that was having on the the children that were playing at seven, eight, they don't really understand that kind of competitive nature. At they're taught it rather than, yeah, they're exactly. taught it or learn, or learn it yeah. rather than explicitly having it, you know, built in essentially. And I think there's healthy, healthy competition and unhealthy competition. And that kind of competition that breeds kind of arguments, violence at times, mm. shouting, swearing, learning that kind of competition at seven, eight, nine, it only is going to breed unhealthy competition as, as you grow up. Mm. So I think it's it's difficult in that kind of environment, especially for kids that don't know any better, mm. that Absolutely. are kind of surrounded by that kind I of I think behavior. as well, quite like, if a kid, as a referee, mm-hmm. if parents are shouting abuse on the sideline, as a young referee, you feel very limitless to what you can do to solve the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the parents get away with it. The kids see what's happening. They, they think they can get they away, can with, get it. away yeah. with it. And that's the trend. And that's a yeah, cycle that's and it starts just from that young age and goes into that young age, I've seen it 
as well, I've refereed games and you get a bit of back chat. And you're mm. like, wow, I wouldn't have dreamt of doing that when I was 10 or 11. When you say back chat, do you mean like just a kid going, oh, I can't believe you made that decision? Or like swearing like from a young age? Or do you mean I like had it proper sort of antagonistic behaviour? I've heard kids swear and lose their temper. Do they mean it personally? Probably not, mm. but it's just in their nature because as you said, that aggressive, competitive nature that's brought into the game from a young age. Mm. And I think it's starting to slow down a bit. I don't think it's as prominent as it was going back the last five, ten years. Mm. But yeah, it's still something I've seen week after week after week. And it isn't nice because that's what sport shouldn't be, mm, yeah. especially at that age. It mm. shouldn't be that. Yeah, and I, I've had it definitely. Sorry. But yeah, go on, go, go on, go on, go on. Children the age of mainly kind of 10, 11, where mm. they start to get a bit more leery, a bit more back chat. Um, and I think some of like the language that I've had personally directed towards me from kids at that age. I was going to ask you about that. Did you get yeah. it? What was this kind of stuff that you got? Yeah, so it was just kind of decisions that didn't go their way, but it's... it's you can swear on this pod, by the way, so you can directly quote <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you want. <laughs> no, but it would be like just deafening and blinding, like what the fuck are you doing? All this kind of stuff from mm. like a nine-year-old child. <sighs> and it's... I don't think they know what they mean. I think What's they've that? obviously heard it from other people on the sidelines, probably or most Or probably their parents at home. <laughs> yeah. But I think even watching it on, on TV, TV, you can mm. see it. You can see the fans. You can see what they're saying. You can, mm. you can hear it. And I think, especially in this day and age where data is so readily available, you can go on YouTube and you can watch interviews with fans that are swearing, effing and blinding, abusing other players. And that available is free to anyone. Mm. So um, I think, oh, yeah. yeah, they're learning this kind of... Uh, this kind of language and, and using it towards people without really probably meaning what they're saying, but they just think that's the done thing and, and that's what to do. And yeah, it's it's, it's an odd experience to get mm. that kind of abuse from a, a child, especially when I was young myself. Mm. So you do always feel powerless in those kind of situations. And what do you think this type of behaviour could have on their, their mental health in the future? I mean, you know, we, we talked about this, this, uh, this abusive culture that can be translated directly from the parents to the children. Um, do you think that culture can be carried over into school and into the behaviours that they have with their peers when they're playing football? Yeah, definitely. I think when we talk kind of unhealthy competition, I think it it kind of does translate into all areas of, of that child's life. It's not just losing a football match and they're, they're getting angry, they're getting annoyed, they're getting upset because their parents are annoyed. I think that moves into anything as soon as they have kind of knockbacks in life, which is inevitable for everyone whether that be at school, whether that be within a friendship group, their, their kind of first reaction to that knockback knock is then the effing and blinding, the shouting, mm. the swearing. And it's, it's difficult to deal with, I think, when you are bred in that way that if you lose, if you, you don't do something right, your immediate reaction is anger. Mm. Throughout the rest of your life, that's only going to cause you more grief and, and more setbacks in, in all other areas where you have challenges in, in life, I think. Mm. We, we've talked about it just, just briefly, Frank, about um, you know the reasons for why this strain of perhaps ultra-aggressive and pushy parents has, has, has in, well, ha- did emerge and maybe it's on the wane, but we can't really say for sure, within youth age football. Um, and we've also talked about, you know, perhaps is it trying to live out their failed dreams of football stardom? Um, is it the vast amount of impact, the impact of the vast amounts of money that, that, that's flowed to the game? Do you think it's purely those factors or do you think it's it, they're reflecting society? It's a good question to start with. Um, yeah, I think it, it's a bit of a mixture of both. Mm. It is a bit of a mixture of both. We're going back to what Connor says. Uh, aggressive behaviour is society at the moment in a lot of forms of sport. Mm-hmm. And that's all sports are shown on TV. 
one it's very available in the media it's then society so it's mm. the norm mm. um, at the same time yeah I still think it is some it's putting the pressure on the child to succeed to the best which every parent wants let's not lie let's not go wrong here every parent wants their child to be the best possible at what they do they want them to succeed yeah, don't they absolutely yeah, yeah. but there's a right way and wrong way of doing that mm. definitely um, but yeah in a way should we say that parents are just doing it to push their child to be professionals no are they doing it but do they still talk to them in the right way no there mm. needs to be a better way of communicating those expectations mm. and not just doing what's presumed to be the norm at the moment mm. and how do you think we stop this behavior i think there's been policies that have been implemented at certain clubs where they say you're not allowed to talk during a game yeah. you're so only allowed FA. to cheer when a goal is scored you know that sort of stuff what See, do you think that sort of thing was not cheering a goal score. I think it's the sort of the opposite effect. I think that should still be... Right. I still think goals should be celebrated because that's the nature of the mm-hmm. game. And that's what we're trying to achieve. The mm-hmm. nature of the game is you're trying to score more goals than the other mm-hmm. team. So, of course, celebrate that. But the FA have brought in the respect programmes. And when you go on their courses and stuff, they show this um, really good video of parents shouting on the sideline and the sort of effect it has on the kids. But is it out there enough on a Sunday morning over the fields probably not They're or in professional this. football as in well professional <laughs> football yeah because not enough's been done um people still getting away with stuff aren't they that's yeah. not like um found abusive language i dread to think what referees hear in professional football every mm. saturday but it's sort of presumed to be in the norm now so let's get away but is there really a governing body doing enough to stop it mm. and is the governing bodies in football actually showing other alternatives mm. i think it's fine saying oh you need to stop this great but what could you do instead how yeah whatever ways why is it why is it this problem in football why in why in rugby is it so cultured and yeah i think what's been done differently what how did it turn this way and that's what needs to be explored a little bit before they come out with a different example of what can be done mm, i think with with rugby it's, it's probably because there's been a culture of respect for the referee for so long even in the amateur level i think there's i think it's probably a frustration with football fans because we can see that there are things we can take from rugby, from cricket, about respect for the umpire, about respect for the referee. You know, miking up refs, I think, would stop 80% of abuse in in the professional game because suddenly we could hear what those players were saying all the time. And if they knew that they were saying, you know, fuck fuck, fuck you referee or even sort of worse stuff and it was caught on camera, their sponsorship deals could be at risk. You know, all sorts of implications could happen and they would have suddenly have to start calling them sir. So... And I think it would also make refs a bit more accountable because I think a lot of frustration with football fans is that some of these refs think they're, you know, they might think they're above the game. They might think they're making the game about themselves. Um, And some of that might be true. And you might get some refs who are like that, but you also might get, it might be a misconception. So I think it's really important that for a governing body, we have the respect program, but we also try and have common sense, you know, policies that that make things better. Yeah, I think with rugby as well I think the difference is with with the referee if he makes a decision every player on that pitch knows that there's a video referee also watching that can overturn that decision if it's incorrect so there's there's no need to be abusive to that referee because Mm. if the decision's wrong it will be changed Mm. I think with with VAR as controversial as it is it will breed more respect for the referee because the players will know there's no point in me abusing that referee. Well, they should know. I mean, yeah. it's not it's, it's not, going not well, done too much so nah. far, but yeah. No, but at least you'll know that that decision's going to be reviewed. That mm. If that referee's made an absolute howler, it's very difficult as a player to not be pissed off because you're putting your all into that game. Mm. And if a decision goes the wrong way because the referee's made a mistake, 
it is frustrating. You're there on the pitch, you're in kind of the heat of the moment. If you knew that there was someone upstairs that's going to review that decision and, and overturn it, if it was completely wrong, mm-hmm. then I think that level of frustration is minimised because you know that the right outcome, hopefully, is is actually going to be the outcome that comes out. Mm. And I think obviously that will be at a Premier League level, but filtering down into kind of youth football, the more respect children especially, they're so moulded by what they see in the environment around them. The more they see respect on TV, the more they see their their idols respecting referees and, and not giving them any, any kind of lip, then, then I think it will only filter down and have a positive effect in the youngsters as, mm. as well. I think a final question to, to, to leave this one on is, is, is the idea of nepotism and favouritism. And I think we've all had experiences of when we've been at clubs, whether locally or, or outside, um, there are certain players or ch- sometimes children who are given special treatment. They might be sons or daughters of you know coaches at the club. They could just be top players at the club who are therefore given special treatment or favoritism because you know they're just excellent players. Um, I think you know why is it important that we try and stamp this out? Because I felt like when I was growing up, if you if there was favoritism at a club. You know, you weren't gotten to know you weren't people didn't get to know you as a person, as a player, and also it filtered through to your enjoyment of the game because you've had a bad experience at a soccer camp or soccer camp. You know, we call them soccer camps. Those after those summer summer camps used to go to, you know, those football camps or you know other things like that. It really had a negative effect on you. You know, what can you tell us about that? So, at a young age, it's massive that everyone plays as much football as they can, and. Some leagues out there are fantastic. They have rolling substitutions. You can basically have as many substitutes as you want. Everyone plays a little bit of minutes each and it enables them to come on. That's great if the club abides to using that. So there is support systems out there where mm-hmm. clubs can play as many players as they want. But again, as you said, most coaches and players and managers want to win a game of football so they'll put their best team out week after week, which I always think at the age of eight... They might be the best team now. But you might have a kid on the bench who at that stage hasn't developed and cannot develop without the game time. But mm. if you allow them to develop, they could be the best player in your team ever because you don't know at mm. that age. How you have no you, idea. It's an no eight-year-old idea. kid. Absolutely no idea. So you have yeah. to give those opportunities. If you're not giving opportunities, there's what's the point of them being there because mm. they're going to stand there on the sideline. It could be raining in the middle of January and they're freezing cold, they're soaking wet, would you ever want to go back again? Not, not at all. Would you ever want not to play football? No. So no. straight away they think, I hate football, I hate sport. Mm. Just because there's one coach whose ego of winning a game of football uh, for eight-year-olds. Uh, eight-year-olds won't allow their child, other kids to get rolling substitutes so they all get equal time. I've been there. Mm. I've yeah. been, I have been there. I've, I've been, been there many times. Yeah, I've yeah, yeah. gone, well, I think I was about 13 years old. I travelled down to East uh, Ebsfleet for a Sunday London Cup game went to extra time didn't get a game mm. so, so got a, thank, was, a thanks for coming as we would say coming, yeah, yeah. TFC 12 years old travelled down with someone else's parents to mm. sit there I think I was the only sub who didn't get used mm. and it's but horrible sort of, that must be so home. demoralising yeah and I went home and I was just like my dad went oh how'd you get on I went I didn't play and he was fuming obviously mm. because I wasted my whole day mm. yeah. to do that and that night when they go home, do you think I really wanted to play football again? Mm. No. Wasn't interested because it's a horrible experience. You feel lonely, you feel isolated. And that's when you get that negative impact on yourself, which 
I was lucky I got over it, but that can impact people for many years, mm. if not even lives. And you can think it's only happens to you because you were the only person in that game to be affected yeah, by it. And, and you see all these players, you know, getting involved and because it's that fear of missing out and it's the, it's the hurt of missing out and in that, it's that negativity that comes with, I didn't contribute to this game and I didn't have a chance to express myself and show what I think I'm capable of. So, so you yeah. think I'm rubbish? Naturally, you're going to think that, aren't you? You're going to think, I'm not good enough to be in this squad. I'm letting these people down. If I come on now, next week, the pressure's on me because last week I wasn't good enough. So I'm going to go on next week and the pressure's on them not to make a mistake. Mm. So there's create that environment for the next time they play. It puts that pressure on them. And if you make a mistake, you might be thinking, oh, all the other players in the team are going to get on to me. They're going to have a go at me. Like, they're going to say, why did you bring him on? We knew he was going to fuck up. All this sort of stuff. You hear that all the time. Yeah. You even hear that now. Like, on Sunday, they kind of, like, you have managers, you have players on the team and, like, they bring this player. Oh, why are you bringing him on? We're winning a game one nil. We're going to lose now. If we lose this game, that's your fault. And that's a manager saying that? No, there's Oh, that's players. players Oh, right. Saying that to their manager while the player's walking on the pitch. Yeah, I think it's especially at, if we're talking kind of young age as well, like at kind of ages of eight and nine. Like you don't know at that age whether or not you're a good footballer or not. You can you can think it. Yeah, I'm quite good. At not unless you've been told it explicitly by exactly. your parents and drummed into you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so, so if you if you don't play, you're naturally going to believe at that age that I'm not good enough. Yeah. When you may well be, and I think, like you said as well, with the bias and, and favoritism, I think that's something that I don't think will ever. No, it won't ever truly go, will it? No, always never have that unconscious bias of like the manager's son or someone that knows the manager well. Like I've had it at trials when I was like 11, 12, and I kind of understood a bit more that, you know what, I am a good player. I know I'm better than that person, for example. But then you go at the end of the trial and that person gets through because their dad's best mates with the guy that's picking mm. the team. Mm. And at that age, I think you can, you can take it a little bit better once you get to that age because you're like, do you know what? I know I'm good enough, but I understand that it's because his dad knows his dad, whatever. But I think especially at the ages of seven, eight, nine, you don't have that kind of insight to the game. So being left out or having that kind of bias at that age, I think is definitely damaging because you don't understand it. Do you think it helps a player, Connor, being told at seven, eight, nine years old that you're the best thing since sliced bread? Do you think that actually helps a player? Because for me... I've seen so many players at that age been told they're the best player in the squad. Mentally, that's going to tell the player, oh, I don't need to work hard. Work hard and and they, get, they, get, they get above themselves, yeah, don't absolutely. they? absolutely. Yeah. And then two years later, the player who might be third or fourth, potentially, if they do it in a pecking order, which I know some clubs do, will be the best because they keep trying and trying. They're and working they, hard. Yeah. They then reach yeah. the top. And that yeah. kid who, who was eight years old and unbelievable is now nowhere near the best player in the squad because purely they've had all this ego boost to them and they haven't tried because they think they're good they're there already they've already thought they've made it mm. just because their dad or a coach outside of professional football has told them they're the best player on the team which in the overall picture isn't really something to be celebrated is it mm. it's something that we're all there to work together as a team mm. yeah I think that's the thing I think it's all about timing and when you're going to be telling players certain things like I think you've got to understand that you've got to let that player mature mentally before you start putting any kind of mental pressure on that patient, a patient player in terms of uh, their performance. Mm. So I think definitely seven, eight, nine, 
10 even, you're probably not mature enough as a, as a child to understand the pressure or to understand what's expected of you. As you get to kind of the 11 aside and, and mm. move further up, I think you're more understanding and you can probably take a little bit more from that. But definitely at a young age, I think any kind of telling you're the best in the world Absolutely. by playing, it's... it's I think going back to your first question, mm. just answered it again. Mm. This relates back to your first question, brilliant. The younger years, kids should have no pressure on them playing sport. It's all about enjoyment, mm. mm-hmm. set themselves up. Yeah. And if something happens further on the line, fantastic. But for them, just take the pressure off, let them enjoy sport, make it social, which it is now at our age. But that then, that's when it should be social as well. As you said, yeah. getting a bit older, 13 to 16, that's the times when clubs might get interested but back then not worth worrying about the next topic of discussion which i hope is a bit more of a positive one uh, for all of us is is about the impact that football can have on on us as adolescent boys based on, on, on what it did uh, did have for us as adolescent boys and um, when teenage boys i think are put in the right environment are encouraged and have confidence instilled in them it can be so transformative on their life um so firstly lads you know tell me a bit about your experiences of football in your teenage and young adult years and the impact it had on you during that period frank do you want to go first yeah so um 16 is actually when i probably actually stopped playing football which is at a young age but i had a knee injury and everything and by that stage while i was a pretty decent footballer i knew deep down i wasn't going to make it if you know what i mean i knew that was sort of the end of my footballing if I wanted to go any further in football mm. to a higher level is that so at the age of 16 you can take your FA qualifications and coaching you can start mm. doing your coaching qualifications so I took it at a really early age and for me that sort of shaped my life from mm. the age of 16 I've been involved in football coaching which um, 11 years later I still am and that really changed my tune towards football that made my life so much more my impact and my view of football so much more positive because mm. I knew I from what I'd seen negatively which we just discussed previously I then knew what I could take from my previous experiences and then change it around to make sure everyone I worked with because majority of the time I was working with kids who were seven eight nine years old and I could take that on board and then make sure their experience was a lot more positive mm. so I knew I had that impact on people in the area that when the, I was coaching them the kids were going to get the maximum enjoyment in sport while also having the ability to progress as well so yeah the last 10 years of so so 16 through to 21 really changed my vision of football definitely mm. and as you said it has put a really positive spin on it mm. what about you Connor? so I think I think they're probably the trickiest years of a footballing career 100% I think 100% especially early on so say probably not teens but like 9, 10, 11 I think it's really difficult because kids develop at different times you get some kids going through puberty, for example, and they're they're much bigger than you, they're much stronger than you, and there's you've gone through that phase of enjoying football, being good on like a seven-a-side pitch. You've then got that transition into an eleven-a-side pitch when you're like eleven, twelve. So I think it's it is a really tricky transition period, and I think that's where the majority of people that maybe played football at a young age, it's where they would drop out if they were going to drop out because it yeah. is it's difficult. I found it especially. I was part of the. Chelsea development squad when I was kind of nine, ten, but there was a lot of children there that were much, much bigger than me, much, much stronger than me, and it it put me off, and I ended up quitting after a year. Mm. Um, there was no pressure from parents or anything mm. to play if I didn't want to, so it was perfect for me, and I, I left and I went back to kind of normal football and, and really enjoyed it. Um, I think that transition is quite difficult. Just a question for me, Connor, for you, 
did it affect your school life at all in terms of that sort of stuff? Because for me, obviously, that sort of age is quite a pressurised yeah, time yeah. of your life as it is. And I sort of came out of football from the playing side. And I knew a lot of people who were involved in trials like yourself and playing in academies. And I saw the pressure on them at that time. And for me, I was still enjoying football mm. while doing school life and stuff like that. When they just didn't know where to turn, essentially. They didn't know whether, do they put their focus on football? Do they put their focus on school? And then it really affected them. Like some of the people I saw, like the stress and the well-being of them really dropped in those, especially initial yeah. years. I mean, I definitely fell out of love of playing football between, you know, 11 to 16. I think because of the school I was in, it was a very, football was very hierarchy. Football was basically a tool for social hierarchy. Mm-hmm. If you were good, if you were great, you were either res- liked or if you weren't liked, you were respected, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, people might not have liked you, but if you were great at football, oh, at least they kind of respected you a bit and they didn't like mess with you or whatever. So I definitely found more love from watching it and going to Huddersfield games. I played, obviously I played in the park, I played yeah. with Dan and James, I played with all the boys um, outside of school, but within school, it was it was a horrible time to, to play football. And I think for a lot of kids, they probably had that experience. What was it What was it like for you, that sort of teenage, those teenage years and adolescence when it came to football? Yeah, I see, I was still at the stage again. I was, I was really enjoying my football. Um, the kind of experience that at Chelsea was one of the things that I went, I didn't like it. I had no pressure from from my parents and I'll be forever thankful for my mum and dad for for giving me a strong focus on school. So like you were saying, Frank, with with that kind of school football balance, my my parents made sure that I was always focused on school first. And and yeah, football never got in the way of that. And yeah, to this day, I'm forever thankful. Because it's a massive decision. Mm. And that age group, I know so many people who chose not to focus on school and I'm... We're really lucky these days that academies bring they, education. They mean they bought, almost have their own private yeah, schools, absolutely, don't they? Yeah, which is fantastic. scholarships. I mean, which Chelsea is, had. I think is it. I'm can't remember if it was Chelsea or, or Crystal Palace. They send some of their canny boys to Whitgift, which is like a private school in the area. And I think Callum Hudson Odoi went there. Yeah. So he not only became an England player, we had a private school education to boot. So well, I yeah. know clubs where teachers go in and like they deliver B techs, mm. A levels, and everything. So. They've got to be, but if we're going back 10 years almost, I know a few guys who dropped out of the system maybe just after their first year scholarships or they had one year professional contract and didn't make it and they're left with nothing. And and they just, put on the Because the, the they've just chosen yeah, football. Yeah, Football's yeah. been their lives for the last 15 yeah. years and I think, wow. And like, then they say, sorry, that's it. we're going to let you go. go from there? And yeah. I can't begin to think how that feels. Mm. Like, as a challenge, mentally challenging, that must be, where's your next step? Where's mm. the avenue? Especially if you're told from those age groups throughout, you might be the best player in that academy squad. You you might be told loads of different things. Your parents might be telling you, you're the best thing. You're going to make it as a Premier League player or whatever. And then suddenly their academy Actually, goes to you. Sorry, lad, you're not going to make it. Yeah, I played with a, a goalkeeper um, back in the day and he was unbelievable from the mm. ages of, of probably... 13 to 16 best goalkeeper I'd ever seen best mm. goalkeeper I'd ever, ever played with and he was on the books at Fulham at the time um, and at 15 they did genetic tests on him mm. found out that he wasn't going to be over 6-1 in terms of his growth mm. and released him wow and just like that that happens him. that's the trend isn't it now yeah. six, if you're not five, a 6 foot 2 as a goalkeeper 
Mm. Yeah, See you later. It is. It's moved now, I think. Unless you're Shay Given. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think football's <laughs> moved now to you can teach football, but you can't teach athleticism. So if you're a, a big built natural athlete, I think you're much more likely to become successful than someone that's maybe technically gifted as a footballer. Because I think it's it's moving to more like we can teach the football, we can breed that into you. But if you're if you're not an athlete, it's very difficult then to actually develop you into a player. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, it's becoming younger and younger that I think people are finding out. I don't think that's a good thing, to be honest. That's a good thing. That's a positive. Yeah. Do you think that's a good thing? I mean, they're, no, they're I think it's good that they find out at a younger age yeah, because agreed. would you not rather find out at 15 that you're not going to True, I agree with that. It? But do you think them saying, oh, you know, we're only going to pick you if you're, an, if you're a naturally gifted athlete rather than you're technically gifted, if, do you know what I mean? I don't agree with that. I think that's look at Messi for example. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, he's. I mean, there he's was tons of players getting told they were too small, yeah, and then they absolutely. made it. So, but I would still rather a club be honest. Honest. With yeah, me. yeah. You want that and honesty. I think 100%. sometimes they're a little bit not like that. Like, oh, let's keep him on our books anyway, and then mm. ten years, five years mm. later, mm. you've wasted five years. But then also on the flip side, you get players who have been released by clubs, and they get that determination, and they still make it. Which I mean, there's always, yeah. I mean, I've heard many stories of England players saying I got released from the books of, I don't know, Charlton or Chelsea or Palace or whoever, whichever club it is, but I still, I got onto a different club, I worked my way up and I still made it. So, I think there's just yeah. loads more opportunities now mm. and non-league, the non-league structure in this country is fantastic now, mm. which has enabled a lot of players who got released professionally to build their way up like they did. Mm. Uh, but, so there's the opportunities there, but I just think you still have to have the right support system to get back into that. I think if you're an isolated 19 year old yes, being released off the agree. books, it's going to be a struggle. And you see that a lot with professionals when they finish their career mm. at the other end. Like, mm. It's a struggle then because they don't know what to do. They've, they've lost that routine. Yeah. They've lost the structure. They, they've lost yeah. the camaraderie with seeing you know all their mates in every single day, basically. Um, and you'll only have to look at someone like Clark Carlisle who really really struggled Absolutely. with you know mental health during the game and then when he retired he lost that structure he lost that routine and I think a lot of these players lose purpose and I think I've seen a lot of players who have gone through divorces after they've retired they've gone through um, you know bankruptcy all these sort of really horrible issues gambling addiction and um, alcohol addiction because they've lost the purpose in their life they've lost the routine and a distraction first and foremost if they have people who are around them who are not great for them and I introduce them to these vices then just you they, that can only lead them down a dark path so Absolutely. I think that really brings us I think that brings us brings us nicely onto you know this age bracket of 16 to 21 which I think is a really really massive point for boys um, in their life and I think it can be for many people the most important time in shaping the person they become and the life they lead what tools and skills did football help you develop during this time? So things like leadership, um, selflessness, identity. And also, what do you think in a bad environment it can do on the flip side for these young men? Yeah, I think socially it's a, it's a massive help. I think because from kind of primary school into secondary school, you're, you're relatively isolated with a, a friend group mm. that you know well, you know how they take criticism, you know, how they take praise, you know, the banter you have with, own, with your own group of mates. I think mm -hmm. once you get to kind of 16 to 21, that's the time where you're really meeting a lot of new people. You're speaking to, to people from different areas, from different backgrounds. You're, you're playing football with different people often. 
Um, obviously within that kind of time I went to uni and, and met a whole new group of people. Mm. And I think having that kind of social aspect of the sport, I think really helped me in kind of adapting my approach in terms of communication at its basic level, mm. just with other people. Understanding that, oh, if I say this, this person may get offended, but if I speak in this way, they'll probably take it a bit better. Mm. Especially coming as like a, in captaining football teams and, and things like that, if you're a leader, there's certain ways that you need to say things to certain people to get them motivated, vice versa with someone else that would take mm. that. Becomes more way. nuanced in how you speak to exactly. people. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I think, yeah, in wider life as well, it's exactly the same that you have that social aspect. You understand a little bit more how, how other people react to things and, and just helps you in terms of, yeah, the wider social aspect mm. of your, your did, life. Did football pr- provide a release or a distraction for, for you when you were at university or, or school um, in both your sen- in both your cases? So I was at university as well mm. and that's when I did a uni degree with a football club mm-hmm. as well and yeah, I think sport is really did take the pressure off it in university sense because I would have all these assignments to do mm-hmm. and then you'd have that Wednesday was always yeah, always day. a day, wasn't football it? Yeah, day, and always it? all my mates always used to have and Wednesday as their game day. You'd have that social sun, it breaks your wake up. Mm. And yeah, that's the thing. I think football is such a great tool because it's, it's so social. It can take your minds off the pressure of life, mm. like outside, of, like, especially at university. There was a lot of pressure. I think people sort of un- forget now, especially with the, uh, our ages, six years ago or so, the pressure we were under to get assignments done and mm. stuff like and this. get a 2-1 or a Absolutely. first. Yeah, yeah. Where sport just gave you that little bit of relief in the week and mm. you went out afterwards, you had a good time mm. and that's the positive impact sport can have and I think that's really where sport is best used to mm. be honest. So it does give you those tools to really develop as Connor said because especially from a coaching side of things for me now, everyone learns differently, everyone is different and it's how you communicate with those people and being so close to a group of 16 people throughout a year you're seeing them every week at least you learn these different skills which you can then take into your day-to-day life mm. and use effectively to make your not life better but you mm. get what i mean you can use it those tools elsewhere mm. during the during the difficult periods connor and, and frank i'll go to you first connor did, did did it ever become a hindrance so was there a point where you had loads of assignments or you had a dissertation to do and you thought God, I've got this Wednesday game and I'm going out on the Wednesday and I know I'm going to be completely wiped out on the Thursday and that's a day of revision that I can't do. Did it ever become a hindrance at all or was it something you just managed and juggled with all the responsibilities yeah, I you mean, had? I think, I think it's inevitable that at some point it will. Um, I think they do it quite nicely, especially with the uni football season, that the majority of the games are at times where you don't have assignments. It finishes mm. a bit earlier. So you've got that kind of revision period. But yeah, inevitably, so I studied science degree at mm. uni and there were certain Wednesdays for example where I had to be in the lab it was experiment driven and I had no choice but there's no there's no pressure from the uni teams they understand you're a university student first and you're part of Cardiff Uni Football Club for me as a secondary um, so I think it's it's good in that way that if there ever is a clash or something that they understand that you're a uni student at mm. the end of the day you're not you're not there to become a footballer um, but yeah, I think definitely for me, it was more of a, used it initially in the early stages to make friends. Mm. I'd moved to a new city, I moved to Cardiff, didn't know anyone in Cardiff. It's very difficult in kind of a lecture situation to make friends. It's sometimes awkward to go out on a night out or something and just try and introduce yourself. Mm. So having kind of that football, it's how I met Dan, mm. Dan Agnew. So I wouldn't have, have known Dan, I wouldn't have been playing for Mably, I wouldn't have been doing all the things I'm doing now 
if it wasn't for football at uni. Mm. So I think as a as a social aspect, as just reaching out to a new group of friends that you probably wouldn't have met otherwise, um, I think it's a, it's a really useful tool and and it's not taken so seriously if you don't want it to. Mm. What about you, Frank? As a hindrance, because of the degree I did, sport was a massive part of it, so mm. it wasn't really a hindrance mm. as such, if you know what I mean. To be honest, though, it did get into a stage where sport was maybe a little bit too much of my You life. wanted to plug out, basically. Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. getting... You had a season ticket on a Saturday mm. at Foot Orient. You had usually end up playing football in a park on a Sunday or mm. some sort of football. And then the rest of the week... Was football. Was football <laughs> or sport. And it was getting a bit of a stage when, wow, this is bogging me down a little bit. Yeah. Like, I'd get home and someone talked to me about football and I was like, I don't actually want to talk about yeah, no, football. And that's completely understandable. And yeah. yeah, it got to that stage when I was a bit scared that might make me fall out of love with it. And mm. there was a day I remember coming back, I mean, I was in my second year at uni and I thought, I'm not enjoying football at the moment. I don't know why. And I've mm. always loved football since mm. I was eight years old. And I sort of did take a step out. I did take a few weeks out of playing football on a Sunday mates so I didn't play in the uni team I just relaxed it a little bit more just to you did some self care basically yeah because yeah. I just thought no I did, I knew my career I knew where I wanted to go I wanted to go into coaching football I wanted to involve in it and I was thinking wow I've spent five years keep building up to this then fall out of love with it so you have to be careful in all mm. forms of life you say self care definitely because it can come a bit overwhelming football and especially in some the higher you get up it can be a bit of a business where it's a little bit too tense that enjoyment of it goes away so yeah definitely just needs to calm down a bit at some stages during mm. uni do you think football can be a tool which can help a lot of these boys find their place in the world because i think especially now they're under so much more pressure than i think maybe we were as as kids you know the rise of of social media and all the different platforms the fact that they don't really ever feel like they can unplug when they get home from school and stuff like that and they're obviously f- figuring out their place they're feeling pressured from their peer group to act in a certain way do certain things portray a certain image there's a lot of toxic masculinity I mean you look at any group of five boys who are 14 years old I mean that's the definition of toxic masculinity isn't it really when you see them out Um, do you think do you think that football can help them overcome these challenges or do you think sometimes it can be almost a hindrance as well works both ways really Mm. to be honest Mm. I've seen stuff where boy might have been bullied in his social group because the pair of football boots he's wearing mm. doesn't match the football boots he's not got a night pair of night yeah, they're, not, or whatever. The nice, they're yeah. not the nice enough pair of boots and but he might still be the best player but he yeah. still gets then he feels under pressure and that makes him feel just uncomfortable in the situation he might be a fantastic skill wise but he's not going to perform as well he can of course yeah. he feels the yeah. pressure of him straight away because he's getting bullied because the pair of boots he wears but also and the other side of the coin is there should be that support system in football from, as a coach, you're not just coaching tactics. Do you get what I mean? Like mm. people in teams should be able to go to a coach or a manager in their team to talk about other issues like that, to take the pressure away from them because it's that sort of man management style. And I think that's what football needs more now is management of boys, women, men, mm. girls, to enable them to feel comfortable within the sport and also on the outside as well. Mm. And I think that's really important that, yeah, as you said, social media is always there, mm. but making sure people are aware that isn't the norm. There's mm. stuff on social media which can't be matched. So don't worry about that. Mm. Worry about yourself and what you can do to make yourself the best person. Essentially. Yeah, I saw a really good example of that, actually. Um, and it's related to you, Frank. You know, 
the we should give um, a shout out to the conduct and, and offer our condolences to to Justin Edinburgh, who, who's who's the manager of Leighton Orient, who sadly passed away uh, a few weeks ago. And he, I saw a story on social media from a former goalkeeper called uh, Lenny Pidgeley. You might be aware yeah, of him. He played a uh, former youth, Chelsea youth keeper, yeah. and he told a story on social media about how when he was struggling with mental health, he went to Justin Edinburgh, who was a manager at the time. I can't remember what Newport club it was. It Newport County, yeah. and he said, "You know, Justin, I'm really, I'm really struggling. I, I don't know." what's wrong with me and all this other sort of stuff and he expected Justin to say what's going on with you man up get over it all that sort of stuff and he said to him no take all the time you need uh, we'll, we'll be here as a club to support you and you, that's exactly right with what you said about how managers should be not how managers well, that's at every level yeah, yeah every exactly. level it should be exactly. there like, coaches tactics aren't the be all and end all you can only do so much with players before they go on a pitch or at training but you should be there as a manager every day of the week. If you know what I mean? If they're for your team, you should be there to help them. And I just really hope that we're getting into a stage of sport now where that's coming more of the norm. Um, you talking about that story. There's a really dream team. Mm. I've done this fantastic six-part series with Leighton Orient because they're the Orient sponsors, I mean. And they talked to Martin Ling. Mm-hmm. And Martin Ling has... No, has had a period of mental health issues. And who, and who is Martin Ling for the Ling? Martin Ling, don't know. Martin Ling is the director of football Leighton Orient. He was the former Leighton Orient manager about 10 years ago and he's gone on to manage Torquay, Cambridge and Swindon. And at one of those clubs, it went to a stage where his mental health got on top of him and he was having these really negative thoughts. And I think he even ended up in a priory mm. and it was only because of the support system he had around him from his family and also his best friend, who's um, Dean Smith, the Aston Villa manager, sort of got him out of that situation and there was this really point in there where 10 years ago before he was aware that he had mental health issues if someone had come to him saying Gaffer I've got a mental health issue he would have sort of said oh we need to get rid of him that put him on the transfer list the irony that being that yeah, he himself had mental health issues three years yeah. later he had them issues himself and everyone's getting more aware of it now and that's where sport and football can play such a major part in that in people's day-to-day lives yeah i think that's the key thing isn't it is the awareness of it i think it is the kind of evolving role of a of a manager at, at, like you say at all levels that it is now moving away from just being i manage you on a sunday and tell you how to play football it's not that anymore their their role is much wider um even into the community now at some of the larger clubs that that their role is to, to kind of look after everyone i think the fans also being a key part of that is to making sure that the the fans are happy, the decisions are being discussed. I think it is, yeah, an evolving role that, that does encompass now much more than just football and tactics, as you said. I think all of the points we've discussed so far, lads, brings us nicely onto how football shapes and has shaped the adults we all are today. And I think this part of our lives is most crucial in how football can help us with our mental health. I think we all know that that social isolation and loneliness is a massive problem, not just amongst boys, but amongst the general population. And I don't think men are excluded from that. So firstly, why don't you each tell the listeners about the impact that Mabley's had on each of you in keeping those feelings of isolation at bay? I think, Connie, you had a really good point about moving to London for the first time and talking about Mabley. Yeah, I think definitely when I when I moved to London, I was quite quite lucky. Because a big leap. Yeah. It's a big leap. Big well, leap. Yeah, so I'm from kind of the Guildford area originally. So from a little sleepy village mm-hmm. um, called Bentley. So it was kind of a definitely a culture shock to come come to London I was quite lucky that I got a job quite soon after uni um, so I was one of the first kind of within my friends to to make the move 
Um, so especially when I first moved up, I, I really didn't know many people at all. Um, and a lot of the friends I did know lived in kind of Brixton, South London. Um, so it was quite far away from where I was. Um, but the one guy I did know was Dan. So I knew Dan Agnew from uni. We actually were in the trials together um, in our very first year of uni when we were freshers. So I knew him um, and reached out to him because I knew he was based in, in East London as well. Um, and he kind of mentioned Mably to me. I think I went actually up to a session a couple of years ago, but, yes. but quite early on. Um, unfortunately, with the job I was in at the time, I was working in um, recruitment. So I just didn't really have the time and, and wasn't able to commit at all um, to get away to, to training. Um, but then last year I, I'd moved jobs. So now I work in the medical sector and I have a bit more flexibility with my time. So, so I can organize it around football. So I can go to training and, and I can be committed uh, as much as possible. I know it's been difficult this, this year a bit as well, but it's really has brought a completely different kind of family. Mm. That, that I never had before. Mm. So coming to London, it was, it was difficult, and it's it's difficult to meet people in London. Of I course, one hundred percent. People yeah. have this idea of London that it, there's so many people, and you're going to meet all these amazing yeah. people, but but it's difficult to meet them in the first place. Um, I lived in a big house, so I had twelve people in my first house, so mm. I I knew obviously a lot of them, and we went out together. But having kind of a, a second family, if you will, within Mably, and, and having kind of a, a group of boys that. You, you go out on a Saturday and you're all trying to, to win for each other. You're all trying to do the best for each other. And I think those kind of relationships can move forwards a bit quicker than kind of just meeting a friend for a drink because you see each other every week, you go out on the weekends and you're really, you're fighting for each other really to, mm. to do the best as a team. And I think those kind of friendships blossom maybe a little bit quicker than, than anything else. And it's so nice to have that as an option of, of people I didn't know before as now a group of people that, that I can socialise with and, and spend time with outside of, of football as well. Mm. What about you, Frank? So at first, it's nice to hear what Connor says there. Must <laughs> be good as a coach. Absolutely. Because yeah. yeah. that's sort of what we're trying to achieve as a club. As you mentioned earlier, we're a community project. We're a club, but we have an emphasis behind everything we do. Um, Mably has sort of made me have new friendships, but also rekindled friendships, if you mm. know what I mean. Because... My squad I sort of put together at Mably is people I've known through football mm. and friends. So when I took Mably, I had a group of school friends who already played there before I even went in. They asked me to go over and help them organise it because it was struggling. I brought in Dan, Dylan, guys, because I knew them through playing football and also knew they were a solid group in terms of personalities and mm -hmm. people. They, was, they had the certain personalities I wanted in the club. And I think that's really important for me is I don't think... No one in the club has an ego. And not with no one having that ego, I think everyone's level. Even though I'm a head coach, I don't want it to be out that I'm the big boss, everything listens to me, where very everyone puts their ideas on the tables and I'll take everyone's so ideas. So it's player-led. Absolutely, yeah. it's player-led. It's a community club, as I keep saying, and we do the best for our players. We do what they want. It's about them having a good time more than anything. And if we're successful, which we have been, fantastic and that's a really added bonus but at the end of the day we go back to that but for me it's sort of brought a bit more purpose into football for me again mm. I've been involved in, in what sense because I've been involved in football for a long time still working football but amazingly I've gone my route in football at the moment is more on a community level anyway like I work with a lot of um, organisations out in London especially who have people 
who work with an emphasis of helping people with mental health issues, for example, mm. which is absolutely great. And I love that side. But I was losing what football was like to play football. And this has given me an opportunity to get back into sport while also bringing that social level with, as well. So it's sort of a two in one. Mm. So for me, it's really, I can't imagine really life without Mabley. And mm. I never thought I'd say that. And to me, to say that sounds a bit strange in a way, but mm. now I wouldn't know any difference. I, even now, we're sitting, even me and Connor before this podcast started, we're outside chatting, seeing it seems weird not having training on Thursday because we have this mm. break period now. It's weird not seeing each other. Mm. And we've had some great socials as well. And I think that's what really important. Like, we you know, our sponsor, and I'll name drop them, the um, North Coat Arms in Leighton have been Good fantastic. Good little name drop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have been uh, fantastic means. for us. And um, we go there and having 20 blokes around the table. And we might have people we all knew before, but we're all sitting with people two years ago we would never have sat down and had a drink with. And you find out you've got these things in common with them. And that then broadens onto different horizons. And I've had so many opportunities out of just little conversations I had with my players and enabled me to have different experiences. And Mm. that's really the positive impact little clubs like this can really have. Mm. I think it's really good also to talk about the flip side of these sort of cultures. And I think for people outside of sport, maybe some people who are not as educated about the sport, people who might be ignorant or, or just people who haven't, who didn't feel that love for the sport that football can, can bring. If you ask them to give an example of toxic masculinity, I think they would probably put a men's football team near the top of the list historically. So firstly, we've, 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 we've talked about the positives of being in Mabley's dressing room and how that benefits your mental health. Why don't you? Why don't we give some examples now of perhaps the negative side? So I agree with you totally. And going back to our sponsors, that was the first thing the landlord said. I don't want to be sponsoring a pub, uh, team of brutes. Mm. People go out there and have fights where I want to sponsor a nice team who have the right ethos. So she came down and watched us and was really happy. And that's how we got the sponsorship deal. But football's always going to be hard for Eddie. And even in Sunday League, which I totally disagree with, you can only have five substitutes. Mm. We had a cup final a week. I had to drop players for that cup final because we just didn't have enough players. But you could have seven in, in a I know, and it's weird. It's yeah, so, I don't get that. And what a negative impact that has. I was respectful. I phoned the players up, told them this is why, this is a decision. Mm. Please come along. You're still allowed in the changing room. Mm. You can stand beside the dugout. Everything. But what a horrible thing for me as a mm, must co- have been horrible. It's horrible for yeah. me to do because I felt terrible after. And also, how do they feel? Mm. They've put all this hard work and effort into a season, and then they're not getting that opportunity to play in a final. Mm. That would knock me down definitely, mm. and that would give me a really negative impact. So that was saying I would definitely change. For example, mm. I think they should be allowed to have as many subs as you want and bring them on and off and do that. But yeah, going back to what you said about masculinity mm. we're not like that we're pretty good to mm. be honest and we have arguments as time as anyone does mm. but we get sorted very quick but i'm let connor talk a little bit more about this and everything in a second but we still see it on the pitch and even though it's not happening in our team it still affects our team because we see it week in week out mm. yeah i think i think what you do really well is is you actually communicate with the players if if they're dropped if they're not doing well you'll actually 
talk to them about it and mm. help them understand the reasons as yeah. to, to why you're making this. Because players want honesty. That's yeah. what they want. If they say, yeah. someone says to them, you're not playing because of X, at least they can say, okay, I'm pissed off, but at least I can respect that decision. Instead of a manager hiding and going, I'm just dropping you and I'm not going to tell you the reasons why. Yeah, because I, I played for a team. We're playing, it's like the league representative team and we were kind of like 12 to 16. Um, and we had a manager there who was brutally honest. He'd tell you exactly how we felt and he'd put the pressure of the world on your shoulders to go out and perform, which was difficult for some. Some people could take it, some people couldn't. But what he, he didn't do was actually explain why he was doing what he was doing. Mm. He would tell you that you weren't playing because you weren't good enough, but he wouldn't give you any feedback to improve. Mm. He wouldn't give you any, why wasn't I good enough? What wasn't I doing well enough so I can go off and I can work on that and I'll Improve you wrong and time. bring you yeah. back, yeah. What, why do you think... Why do you think that would have an Im- a negative impact then? I think because, like with anything, if, if you feel you're not good enough but you don't know why, I think that breeds in, in your mind, certainly where I've, I've had it in the past where I think I'm not quite good enough but I just can't figure out what I need to do to be better. And I think that is the time where you go home and, and you get into that kind of negative mental spiral that you're thinking like, what am I doing wrong? And if you can just have someone that can guide you, just to let you know... It's, it's one thing knowing you're not good enough, but to not know why I think is 10 times harder. Mm. If I know for a fact that I'm not doing this right, but this is what I need to do to improve, I can work on that. I've got something as a focus to my mind to improve myself. Mm. I think it becomes a toxic environment and a, and a bad dressing room when you've got players that are being left out, that are being not played or, or played out of position with, with no explanation and, and no kind of actually feedback for them to go back and nothing for them to work on. Mm. Um, I think that's the thing as soon as your mind especially with mental health as soon as your mind is isn't occupied with something else if your mind is occupied purely with the negative thoughts and that's where you kind of can sit back and fall into that kind of damaging mental mental side mm. of things but I think I think we also know that that top level professional teams and there's probably countless examples of Sunday league teams which have been rife with you know the the consequences of toxic masculinity, shall we say, you know, homophobia, bullying, um, you know, toxic language being used towards other players, racism, sexism from coaches and players. Um, why do you think historically that we're only sort of now starting to challenge these norms and and break this kind of these barriers down? And do you think, secondly, it's it's symptomatic of this sort of proper football men in inverted commas generation or has it continued amongst our men our age too yeah we had we had quite a big incident actually at uni um with the cardiff uni football team um it was a social that was was put on um by the social secretary at the time um and basically they they did a presentation and it was all about girls with low self-esteem and how to like get with them and this kind of stuff. Completely <laughs> distasteful, <coughs> awful. Who signed thing. that off? So that's <laughs> the thing, you don't have anything to sign off. If you're the social right. sec, you're a uni student, that's it. And I think the social hierarchy of, especially football in Cardiff, was that like, I want to be the biggest lad. Yeah, lad culture. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to make everyone laugh. And I think it is that lad culture that, that kind of drove that to happen, completely misjudged, um, obviously horribly distasteful. And, and they did it in a public place in a pub did it in a pub so it yeah. wasn't like 
they could even get away with doing it in say like a seminar room and doing it just amongst them they put it in a public place where it was all for people to see on a social where everyone was drunk and obviously they got loads of complaints got in loads of trouble um they actually stopped a few of the boys from playing football again for the uni because it's probably right decision didn't didn't want to be associated with that kind of behavior um but it is i think it's one of the things it is that kind of lad culture that you think it's funny and then especially at, at uni because you have the people that have been there for kind of four or five years before you get yeah. there you the elders yeah and you're yeah. fresh and you look up to these third years yeah. and fourth years and yeah the thing is yeah. if you don't join in or do what they say you just don't get played at uni it's mm. just like that if you don't fit in with the lads then you are a bit of an outcast so sometimes i think you have to not necessarily contribute to that environment but be in it or you're forced to yeah, yeah. you're forced to kind of not be in the same area of mm. it be in the same room um and I think it is difficult, but I think it is certainly now that with kind of the feminist movement, mm. um, the whole kind of respect movement, the mental health movement, I think it is making people much more aware that this is not okay, that mm. this shouldn't be happening at any level at any time. Mm. Um, and hopefully that kind of change will, will continue. Um, and Frank, we'll briefly touch on your, your experiences as well, but first of all, building on, on what Connor said, why do you think it's important that, that older boys in the squad you know they take responsibility not completely for the younger players but to lead by example you know lead how they behave how how they behave on nights out lead how they behave on the pitch off the pitch all that sort of stuff as con just said they're the role models the older players the role model you think i if i'm going to fit in with this squad i need to sort of get on board with what the older players are doing so if they're doing something out of the, out of the ordinary like not in good nature you copy it and you think oh, that's all right they'll find me funny and mm. i'll get on board it where it should be the complete opposite mm. the older players should be the ones who sort of are that support systems we were talking about earlier they're the ones who put the arms around the shoulder and say you shouldn't be doing this mm. and i think correcting come, the younger players it, behavior yeah, because yeah. younger players will make mistakes mm. they make mistakes it's natural that won't but if there's not the support system for to stop that It'll just keep happening, happening, happening. And then they get older. And before you know it, they're They'll the be oldest players in that squad, behavior and onto the younger players. Exactly yeah. that. So there needs to be that stop mentality now, really, where the older players need to get their, know their roles and responsibilities. Mm. And I think that comes from above still. I don't think that you can't put all the blame on the older player mm. for not doing that because there's someone above them as well. Mm. The manager, the head coach, or the social secretaries, whoever looks after them from the university need to put that in place so that stuff like that doesn't happen in the first place mm. so they know what's happening or and if those rules and guidance aren't passed out to players doesn't matter what age they are mistakes will happen mm. and it doesn't matter how truthful if someone's meant or to do morally good you are you yeah. can always be corrupted by a group absolutely. of people that don't have your best interests absolutely mm. but someone might do something by mistake it's still going to affect that person who's taken offence to that isn't it mm. So there has to be that put in place in the first place so it just doesn't happen. Mm. It's like the Jesse Lingard thing at the moment, isn't it? He's getting all this backlash for his... Kind what, of for like being stuff. himself and like expressing himself on Instagram? Yeah, I think... It's all was, bullshit, isn't it? Yeah, and there was, but there was things like when he was talking about like, oh, shagging all the birds in the hotel and all this kind of stuff. It's a bit like, you are a 27-year-old bloke, like, probably just don't do it. Do you know yeah. what I mean? like, there needs to be some responsibility from him as well, by the way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. he's like, he's a role model for so many kids. Like, you go to United games, you know, the kids with, with Lingard on the back of their shirt. Like, or doing the J-Lings. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if he's a 27-year-old bloke and a 13-year-old kid, like, 
oh, he's joking about like shagging all these birds in his hotel and stuff. That's going to breed that kind of behaviour moving forward as a older player, although he seems to be treated as kind of a youth player still, Jesse Lingard. Mm. But as a, an older player within that team, he should also probably be moving away from that kind of behaviour. Yeah. And I think also that behaviour will end up reflecting badly on him, as we've seen in, this, in, in on Twitter and all this sort yeah. of stuff. People going oh, he's, he doesn't take himself seriously. He should be all of this. And maybe he isn't a leader. You know, not everyone is born a leader. You can, you can have 35, 36-year-old blokes who aren't leaders, but the important yeah. thing for him is to make sure he acts responsibly, but also is true to himself. So he can, you can do all the joking stuff on Instagram, but you can't be doing that stuff like you said, Connor. Yeah, he may not be a leader, but in the position he's in, he is one. Yeah, That's sure. And in, the, in the playing squad, I mean. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's got to understand that maybe I shouldn't do that. Mm. And I'm sure, he, I'm sure he regrets it now. Yeah. Like, let's not lie, he might come out and say, oh, I'm on holiday, but mm. but what, have, what are football clubs doing to stop that in the first place? Exactly. Could he go back mm. and say, oh, Man United didn't really tell me much about this. I thought this was... It's a cop-out, isn't it? Yeah, it's a cop-out, yeah. but it's still there, isn't it? Mm. Like, what are clubs... Clubs are not just there for football. They need to look after their players and all sit say, stop them getting into trouble. And if they're in any spots of trouble, it doesn't mean because they've committed to St. Crime or said St. City, if they might have trouble with something going on at home. Mm. Clubs need to have that little bit of responsibility just to help out. Not mm. expecting them to solve it, but the support system there to help it out in some way. Mm. And, and how do we think we, we break down this toxic masculinity amongst young footballers so they don't experience the things that, say, someone like Ian Holloway had to go through when he was at Wimbledon? I heard stories about when he was completely bullied by all of the crazy ganging and... You know, you get players who have come out of clubs and they say, I was I was bullied at a club when I went in. I was a good player, but because I was bullied by the, the older the older lads in the dressing room and the younger lads then joined in, then I wasn't able to deliver my potential and I maybe fell out of love with the game. You know, how, how what things do you think we can do as, as, as men and as society to change that? So there's always been this silly quote of what goes on in the dressing room stays in the dressing room. And why is that bullshit, by the way? <laughs> because... <laughs> If something happens in the dressing room, which you're not happy about, mm. and everyone else is laughing, you think, oh, I must be the odd one out. I'm not going to tell anyone. Mm. So you don't go externally to get that support because mm. you think, oh, better not because I'll get into trouble because I've been told whatever's said in here has to stay in here. And if I go out and tell someone, it could be a domino effect that gets me into trouble, which shouldn't be the case. Mm. And I think we're getting away from that now. Mm. And I think like Holloway's a good example. Mm. You've got that Fred, really good example because I bet he felt the same. Mm. I bet he felt, oh, this is happening. No one needs, else needs to find out about mm. this because otherwise it's going to put more pressure on me and I might get bullied more mm. because they're going, why are you spreading this? Why are you saying this? But or Why are you overreacting? Yeah, you know, why are you being selfish? The role doesn't revolve around you, all this crap. But again, going back to what you said a few, that's where the man management needs to come in place. There needs to be opportunities for players to discuss this when they're outside of the training room, away from the group. Mm. Football's a team game, but it's made up of individuals mm. and they all need different support systems and they might take offence to different little things. And if it, a club you know, or just a team can have any of those little people who players can talk to to help them out and make them feel that their point is valid mm. and look at other issues, we're going to take that horrible mm. sort of atmosphere away from clubs, which still seems the stereotype to the people outside of football, but it is becoming less and less common should we say but it's still there that's yeah. not like it's still there I think yeah I think like you said it's it's giving that player a voice I think historically there hasn't been those support networks within football teams so you have that kind of 
environment where you're you're getting bullied, should we say, um, within the change room, but you've got no one to speak to about it. I think now, especially in, in the workplace as well, outside of football, that you have a lot more feedback. You have constant um, reviews of processes and how things are working, and it's giving footballers, employees alike, the voice to voice their opinion and an actual stage for them to, to give their opinion and be listened to. Mm. Where I think previously we never had that. Mm. I think as long as if you're having issues but you feel like you're being listened to and you feel like someone's actually trying to sort them out, mm. it becomes far less of an issue than, than if you have to deal with that on your own. Mm. So giving them a voice, giving them platform to actually air their opinion um, and actually reviewing it as a team, I think uh, are much more healthy processes to kind of eliminate this kind of behavior. And just finally, Frank, just a question to you. I mean, we, we talk uh, we talked a bit previously about the idea of the, the proper football man. It's a, it's a phrase that's commonly used in, in football punditry, sort of the idea of the old school pundit talking more about the emotional side of the game as opposed to maybe data-driven pundits. But I think a lot of these proper football men were in football as managers, but I find it quite ironic because they will probably see themselves as this idyllic version of a man when actually the fact that they were allowing their own players to bully other players isn't really what the isn't really the idea of what a proper proper man is is it no and it all goes under that word banter so i was just a bit of banter well it is for them but other people have different explanation like they'll take it on different ways as we said so there is no proper man in football because everyone's going to be different everyone's got their own different ways of doing it and I think that's coming out now football's changing because the proper football man of a few years ago where it was a bit masculinity and stuff mm. like that it, I wouldn't say is happening as much mm. now so maybe the stereotype's going to change a little bit in the next mm. five to ten years for maybe good maybe better we'll see um, but yeah that term really don't like it I think we said to each other didn't we mm. that it's really puts a lot of pressure on people and then mm. they that they're letting it get away with people so people are going oh the proper football man said let this go so it must be alright when it's not at all so we've come to the final topic of the pod which you'll be uh, pleased to hear lads <laughs> um, and this is one which I have with all the guests on the Just Checking In pod which is our own mental health now I wanted to frame this specifically around Mably as well because you're you're both here um, firstly though very briefly how are each of you doing at the moment with your own mental health and if you could felt comfortable sharing what mental health issues do you live with on a day-to-day basis if you do have any Frank let's go with you first so I would say at the moment my mental health probably is in a good place and I was saying to you Fred earlier that I want to be quite clear now I have had mental health when I was younger probably got bullied um, so I'm in school and playing football as well as we discussed earlier I wasn't the best player so I got bullied a little bit yeah I was the same for mate. not yep. being good enough and I had the support systems in place to get over that and still be in love with the game mm. so now I sort of for me it's helping people with mental health issues because I think I'm in a good enough place at the moment and maybe from previous experiences I could then use whatever sports systems I had to help other people out mm-hmm. and Connor what about you yeah I think I at the moment it's okay it's one of those things that because I, I think I work in a sales job so it's always you kind of are working month on month you get towards the end of the month and you've got to get the money into so there's always that kind of underlying pressure that kind of builds up in in waves on a monthly basis um i've also got kind of a lot of extra work on at the moment that i've just been catching up with and doing so it's one thing where it's more stress than, than anything kind of mm-hmm. mental health issue wise mm-hmm. um which is fine yeah. yeah 
Exactly. So it's just, yeah, stressed out, but otherwise mental health wise, I think, yeah, fine. Cool. I think then, which is good, great to hear from both of you lads. Um, the next question I think to naturally ask, and it's something we've, we've touched on, I think a bit earlier is, is what impact has, has playing for Mably and belonging to this club had on each of your own mental health and your, your general, you know, state of mind? I think for me, it gives me that support system in place because I might be the head coach, but I've got these fantastic people around me, players, managers who also consider friends who I can talk to if I ever have got these issues. If I have something comes up in my mind, it might not be the most severe mental health issue, but it might be a little bit like upset after a game or something like that or something's not gone wrong and I feel responsible for something. I have that fantastic support system in place to talk to them and get these ideas to bring my confidence back up. So for me, is yes, I'm helping people out myself from the role I've got, but I've also really respect everyone in that sort because they've helped me out and I think people don't realise they're helping me out at times where mm. they really have done just through pure positivity they show and I think that's something we are we're a really positive squad and we're there to help each other out so Mably's really helped in that sense and it doesn't have to be to do with football either mm. I might have, can't turn up on a Thursday from a really bad day at work mm. and just you said Connor, I might be stressed but just having that sort of group of individuals how positive we are mm. and we've got that support it's really helped out and does it normalise it as well in, in the sense that you don't feel like oh this is something that I'm just going through and, and, and I'm going through it alone yeah. I think where we are as a bunch of individuals I think we all sort of are from the same background mm. like we're all from the same a lot of us are from the same area went to the same schools and we might have been through the same sort of things not all of us I think that's one they want to pull out there there is people who might have more um, severe mental health issues or something like that but we're all coming might have had experienced that past and we might all have that know-how how to get over it so you feel yeah this is normal this is normal what I'm going through here and let's get over it together and you've got that support system in place we're all in a group a whatsapp group we we might want to put it on the group we might have a problem we want to talk about or we've got everyone's individual contacts and we can talk to each other freely. Mm. What about you, Connor? Yeah, I think I would say about normalising it. I think it's it's so true, especially in this day and age of social media, where there's always someone with a nicer car, there's always someone with a nicer house, there's always someone doing the one-upmanship culture. Of. Of yeah, course. yeah. And there's always people that are painting their lives to be these perfect things on on social media, and without actual human-to-human social interaction, you're never going to get an actual view of life in reality. And I think having just a, a group of, of mates, you can see, you know you're going to see them every week. You know they're going to see them probably twice a week. You can have actual human interaction, have a real chat, an honest chat about things. And it does, it just, it puts everything back into perspective. You're mm-hmm. not dealing with things on your own. Everyone's dealing with issues and, and normalising it definitely, I think, is, is a massive help. And just building on that, Connor, which is, um, you know, when you're playing on a match day, I think I've had a lot of conversations with with people about um, mental tools that they use um, on a match day. I've spoken to people I used to play cricket with and when you make a mistake and stuff like that. You know, what tools do you use to, say, bounce back from a defeat or a mistake you make in a game? And how do you get through that and say, you know, I'm going to make sure that if I miss that cross or I miss that shot, the next time I get the opportunity, I'm still going to go for it. I'm still going to go for the ball. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I music is a big one for me. Mm. I'll always music can really dictate what kind of mood I'm in um, and can alter my mood if I'm in a bad mood there's certain like bands or songs that I'll listen to if I'm in a bad mood there's certain bands or songs that I'll listen to if I'm, I'm annoyed whatever um, and I've always been quite a musical person so I think 
music for me is quite a nice tool on an individual level to be able to go home and actually kind of alter my mood and, and feel a bit better about things. Um, but I also think with, with Mably, if things have gone wrong on a match day, we all get into a huddle at the end of the game and we all discuss it. Mm. We don't just fuck up a cross and then I go home. Mm. We discuss that in the game. And I think it's, you're playing over 90 minutes. Mm. So I think you've got to be mature enough to understand that, yes, I may have missed that chance. Yes, I miss have made that mistake. But over a 90 minute game, I cannot have a full influence on the result of the game. We all could have done better in certain areas. Uh, and I think that's something that, that we do well is that we get together and we discuss the game and everyone is able to voice their opinion on that. Mm. So everyone knows that, yes, I made that mistake, but we also went wrong here. We also could have improved over there. And the result isn't my fault, it's our fault. Mm. Which is and that's good to have thing. a collective responsibility rather Absolutely. than say, I'm, I've fucked up a chance or I, you know, I missed a tackle which conceded a goal and made us lose a game, but you lose as a team and you win as a team. Yeah. We've really got, great's going to keep saying this, but if someone has made a mistake, they put their hand up at the end of the game and go, I'm really sorry, that was me. It's forgotten about. That's mm. it. It's done and dusted. Like, not in a horrible way. That's it. Mm. What can and happen? What and can ha- they've, yeah. they've cleared it off their chest, which is great. But we enabled them to do that by getting the little mm. huddle in and we talk about stuff. But you can't, if there's a mistake, what can you change after a game's finished? Let's mm. be realistic. Nothing. It shouldn't be on your mind all week because at the end of the day, it's Sunday League football. We're, all, we're not professionals. We're going to mm. make mistakes. We're there for fun. Mm. Obviously, mistakes will annoy certain members of the squad. But at the end of the day, is we all just get round. That's it. It's done. Finish. And I think that's the sort of environment we're trying to mm. create. We were actually talking outside again just before. And there's going to be times as a coach, as a manager, you're going to get a little bit annoyed, especially if someone hasn't listened or doing their job. Mm. And it's just the nature of beast and mm. life that you're going to get a little bit annoyed and you might say something a bit... In the heat of the moment. Heat of the moment. Yeah, yeah. But it's then, as we kind of said, how do we change that? It's a mistake. Mm. It's happened. But what can we do better as a group, as an individual? We set those targets and the positive outcomes of it. And everything's realistic and setting stuff that we know we can do, not mm. setting stuff above what we know. Because what's the point of setting as a group targets which aren't achievable? Because mm. if they're not achievable and you found them, that's going to have even more of a negative impact on it. So, yeah, it's really just sitting down as a group and just working out what can we do together. Because mm. we're... We're all playing for the same cause at the end of the day. I think that, I think that point you made about um, making sure that people don't dwell on mistakes is a really important one because I definitely have rumination anxiety. And I think if any in any part of life, whether it's at work, whether it's friendships you make, anytime you, someone with anxiety, especially rumination, you hurt someone accidentally or you say something you don't mean, that mistake can ruminate and you can overthink about that all the time. So I think in sport, it can be a massive thing. You only look at you know, people like, say, Laurie's Carrius, who made two of the, probably the biggest mistakes of his life in, in, in one game. I can only imagine the rumination he must have had after that. So I think it's really important that you, as a head coach, and you've instilled into, into Mably the fact that people can make mistakes, doesn't make them a bad person, as long as we learn from it and we can move on and it's, it's forgotten about. Absolutely. And uh, in the cup final we had a few weeks ago, we lost 1-0. And their goal came from a mistake. Mm. And he was very upset about it. I'm not going to drop his name until mm. it's not fair on the boy. Um, but we went out afterwards. We went, game was over. We went home, we got changed and we went down the pub. And mm. admittedly, we had quite a few to drink that night. It was a bank holiday weekend in mm. May. He was the happiest person in the pub. And he totally forgot about it. 
just in literally two hours because of the work that you've done because the environment we set it's like okay we were all gutted in the change room don't get me Mm. wrong but no one pointed a finger at at the gentleman who made the mistake because why should we do that Mm. it's it's a human error all you're doing is compounding the mistake that he made and making the situation worse the thing is I'm I'm glad you brought up the the carriers thing because I think personally the most toxic trait in the whole of football is when a player makes a mistake like that it was Carrius lost Liverpool the Champions League whereas in you're playing a football game if for example someone had made a tackle four passes earlier before that shot that they missed that shot would never have happened so it wasn't Carrius's mistake there's a series of mistakes that led up to that opportunity happening yes he's the goalkeeper yes he should be saving it but at the end of the day like there's build-up play that goes on before any mistake that happens and there's opportunities someone doesn't track their man someone exactly. doesn't do their job yeah it's and I'm not bigging us up this at all but we actually do that don't we we say this could have been better here so then it's a collective mistake as a squad which Mm. we then we all work on so no one's feeling that individual pressure anymore Mm. and that's really important creating that environment because if you as i keep saying negative experiences shape you will shape you and you won't want to play again and then if you do play again you feel the pressure on you and it just all adds it's a domino effect Mm. why do that to someone Mm. why create that environment on them you mm. can't lose a football game as an individual. I can never lose a game for Mabley because of me. Mm. It's it, it's impossible. There's 11 people on that team that all contribute to everything that happens in every passage of play. So I think, especially the media contribute to it more than anything, I think, is that they're putting the blame on individual players for certain mistakes they've made. Mm. Where that is, is horrible for that player. When in reality, it's, it's really not that player's fault at all. There's... Mm. 101 scenarios that could have taken place before that even got to that stage Mm. Um, so yeah I think it is it's really important to move any kind of blame off any individual it's always a team result Mm. and there's always opportunities for a team to to kind of change things earlier on yeah so we've we've talked about this briefly as well and we've we've covered it quite well actually Frank Um, what processes do the club have in place quickly that we can talk about to support the boys if any of them come to you or the chairman or the first team captain um, in confidence about their mental health? So I wouldn't actually say, Fred, there's an actual process. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should look at that as a club mm-hmm. and have the discussions with you a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It's something we spoke about. But the environment we've created as a squad and as a team, I would like to think... I think that can be a process as well, by the people way. People yeah. are confident in talking to at least one of us. We've got myself... I would have hoped to think it's quite approachable. Mm-hmm. We've got Dylan as captain, mm-hmm. who's a fantastic captain, and I hope he's pretty approachable. And then we've got Chris, who's the club owner. He's a great guy. But then we've got everyone. Mm. And I don't think if there was a problem, I would feel hopeful that everyone feels that they can talk to someone. And it might not come to me directly, or it might not come to Dylan directly, but by talking to other people, it comes to us and we work together mm. to over come that issues mm. and I think that's the sort of process we have is that the environment we set is that positive with we can it's the norm to talk about that it isn't an issue to talk about it shouldn't be something that's seen as wrong to talk about it should be I've got this issue let's talk about it great because we're all here for each other mm. what do you think Connor? Yeah I think I think it's important to remember as well that we're we're just a Sunday league club we we just get together on a Thursday for training we get together on Sunday for games and and yes we are close but yes everyone has a full-time job everyone has their own kind of 
friendship groups outside of, of Mably as well. Um, I think myself personally come to Mably for a release of that that kind of pent up stress and energy. You want to go, you want to go have a good time and enjoy the session and, and get something out of it. Um, I think there's lots of avenues for mental health discussion that are offered outside of the football club as well, mm-hmm. um, especially with, with work now and, and jobs and, and other friends that can have that discussion. But I certainly feel that if I were to have any issues and if I were to come to anyone within Mably with them, that there would be support for me there and I would be helped as, as much as possible within that. Frank and Connor, thank you so much for being my special guests on this edition's pod and for checking in with me. It's been fantastic to get an insight into the type of club you've created at Mably and I'm really excited to continue this partnership event in the future. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or if you're feeling really generous, write a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon and remember, it's always okay to vent. It's strange, strange.